Uh, Well, if you haven't already done so, uh, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Lamentations 3. We will be looking at verses 19 through 39 this morning. Um, Lamentations 3, 19 through 39, I believe you can find that on page 689 in the blue ESV Bibles. And the seat backs in front of you uh, could be 690. Um, Lamentations 3. Uh, the title of our sermon is, Therefore I Will Hope, and the key words for our worshipers and training are mercy, new, and compassion. Robert Frost's poem, The Road Not Taken, is a reflection uh, on the difficult choice that one faces when arriving at two possible yet unknown paths. He says, two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and I'm sorry I could not travel both. And be one traveler, long I stood, and looked down as one as far I could, to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other just as fair, and having perhaps the better claim, because it was grassy and wanted wear, though as for that, the passing there had worn them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay, in leaves no step had trod in black, Oh, I kept the first for another day, yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one last traveled by, and that has made all the difference. We are presented similarly with two paths. In Lamentations chapter 3, while Frost laments the fact that he cannot travel both paths, we shall have no such sorrow today. For my endeavor this morning is to lay out these two paths before you and to tell you how each one ends so that you don't have to wander as poor Mr. Frost as he puts it in the last line, or the last stanza, he says, for ages and ages hence, he sighs. Lamentations 3.18, which was the last verse we considered last week, presents this splitting path, these diverging roads. One leads upward and onward, wherein the traveler is filled with hope. The other leads downward and inward, wherein the traveler is filled with despair. So the choice for us should not be difficult. And yet, we so often find that it is. Last week, we looked at verses 1 through 18. We saw the poet of Lamentations strive to put into words a response to suffering which he had hoped to draw out of Lady Zion in Lamentations 2. He fails to do so, and so in chapter 3, in this third poem, he enters into the suffering of his people and expresses in agonizing terms the way in which he had experienced God's anger. He concludes that God's judgments against him had left him bitter, fearful, anxious, depressed, 
and on the very brink of a total crisis of despair. He says in verse 18, My endurance has perished, and so has my hope from the Lord. The poet is therefore faced with a choice when he utters these words. Will he traverse the well-worn path of despair? Or will he choose the other, the far less traveled path in a sin-sick world? Will he choose to hope? But that leads to a question. Can the man who has voiced verses 1 through 18 in all of their agony, in all of the, the raw honesty of his suffering under the weight of God's judgment, can that same man speak a single word of real hope? And the answer, astonishingly, is yes. And not just a single word, but many words full of hope. And here in this passage before us, I'll read it in a minute, but it is the one note of hope struck in the whole entire book of Lamentations. It is probably the best known passage in all of Lamentations. It's where songs like we sang earlier, as long ago as that seems now, when we were singing Great is Thy Faithfulness, comes from the, the passage before us. And if it weren't honestly for songs like Great is Thy Faithfulness, we might not even know of this passage. Many Christians wouldn't. And so here we've come to the, the pinnacle, the climax of the book, where hope abounds. And so let's read verses 19 through 39. Outline them and then get to work. He says, Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in Him. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks Him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes. Let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. To crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth. To deny a man justice in the presence of the Most High. To subvert a man in his lawsuit, the Lord does not approve. Who has spoken and it came to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Why should a living man complain, a man, about the punishment of his sins? So I want you to consider three things with me from these verses this morning. First, in verses 19 through 24, we are going to see the poet recall and apply 
God's word to his situation. Second, in verses 30, 25 through 30, we will see the poet build on his personal experience of suffering and hope, and he will encourage others who suffer to wait patiently on the Lord. And third, in verses 31 through 39, we will see the poet ground his thinking in three vital truths about God. So he quotes and applies Scripture. He calls on others to wait on the Lord in their suffering. And he grounds his thinking in three vital truths about the character of God. So look with me in the first place at verses 19 through 24 where we see the poet poet recall God's word which brings hope to his seemingly hopeless situation. The poet, beginning in 3.1, if you'll recall, has interjected himself. He's expressed his own personal anguish as he suffers alongside his people. And by the time you get to verse 18, we have begun to fear that he has completely become overwhelmed by the suffering that he's experienced. We fear, perhaps, in verse 18, that he has descended into mute madness, perhaps never to speak again. His, his hope, he says, has perished from the Lord. And he concludes, right? He concludes by actually uttering those words out loud. He speaks the, the despair that had been hiding and growing under the surface of his lamentation, beginning in three one, he finally speaks and says, My endurance has perished, so is my hope from the Lord. And then perhaps a long silence ensues. You can imagine it. He's, he's reflected on how God has led him into darkness, has held him as a captive, has hunted him down as prey, leaving him a wreck. And he says, my endurance is perished, so is my hope from the Lord. And he sits there with his, hand, his, his head in his hands, having cried all that he can, having said all that he can. Perhaps he won't speak again. But then almost involuntarily, he is prompted to speak again. And he does so in verse 19. Now, the ESV here has it translated as as an imperative. He says, remember my affliction and my wanderings. Perhaps he's calling upon the Lord to remember. Perhaps he's telling himself to remember, which would make sense because in verse 20 he says, I do remember. But it's also possible grammatically, and it might be more helpful to actually have this translated, remembering my affliction and my wanderings is wormwood and gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. So he, it, the effect of these two verses, verses 19 and 20 together, they form some type of exclamation. Somehow the poet here once more acknowledges the ache, the, uh, the unbelievable suffering, the unforgettable and inescapable memory of the pain that he has endured. It cannot leave his mind. And so he, he thinks this thought about his suffering. But before we press on, I want to back up and ask, what was it that prompted him to speak? 
Why didn't he just stop talking in verse 18? Why didn't he, like Lady Zion at the end of Lamentations 2, fall into some type of unbelieving silence? I want to offer you this thought. And admittedly, we can't be completely certain as to the motive of why he continues to speak. But I think this makes the most sense. It seems that it was his decision to finally name his attacker in verse 18 that prompted him to continue to speak. Remember, last week in verses 1 through 18, we said in verses 1 through 17 that the poet merely refers to the attacker as he. Unable to bring himself to confess the identity of his assailant, he contents himself with just a third-person personal pronoun, he. He has done this. He has done this. He has done this. But then, right as he begins perhaps to slip into full-blown despair, he utters the name of his adversary, Yahweh. Which is the way, right, when you have the Lord, L-O-R-D in all caps there, it's the, the name of God, Yahweh. And I want to come back to the significance of that in a moment, but I want to make this clear here. I believe that is the only thing that kept him going. Right as he seemingly decides to fall into complete silence and anguish, he speaks and hears God's name. And this prompts a thought, a decision. Two roads have appeared before him now that he has said and heard God's name. See, these seemingly involuntary memories that plague his mind that he discusses in verses 19 through 20 offer him one path. They offer the path of despair, the path of rehearsing his sorrows to himself over and over and over again until he dies, hopeless and alone. But having heard God's name, he chooses a different path. Rather than allowing these seemingly involuntary memories to live rent-free in his heart and in his mind, he purposefully calls something else to mind. When you're under the gun, when you're suffering, whether it's for your own sins like Jerusalem is here, or someone else's sins like Joseph in the book of Genesis, or for no apparent reason at all, like Job did, you will be offered, brothers and sisters, two paths. You will be offered the path here of verses 19, 20, and 21. You will be tempted to rehearse your sorrows, to let them linger in your mind, to dwell on them, and be dragged into greater and greater degrees of misery. You must resist. You must make a conscious effort to set your heart on something else. This language is getting into verse 21 now. He says, but this I call to mind. He is describing here a very conscious effort to set his heart on something. To bring something back to mind. It doesn't just float back to mind. He calls it forth to mind to think on it. He conveys a very intense, very active work here to think on something other than his suffering. And here it is where we return to God's name. It seems that uttering 
the Lord, uttering Yahweh at the end of verse 18, invited the poet to force his mind to at least one text of Scripture. Look at what he says. He goes on, he says, This I call to mind, therefore I have hope. Moving on to verse 22. He says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Does that sound familiar at all? Does it ring any bells? How about Exodus 34, 6? In the aftermath of the golden calf incident in Exodus 32, then in 34, the Lord once more cuts His covenant with Israel. He stands before Moses and it says He proclaims what? His name. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Do you hear the similarities? Steadfast love, mercy, and faithfulness fill up Exodus 34, 6. They fill up Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. But they're not identical, right? This isn't a direct quote of Exodus 34. He doesn't merely recite the text, which he could have done. He could have just said, oh yeah, Exodus 34. That's a text that I remember. That exists. But he doesn't do that. He personalizes it. He makes it his own. He works it out in similar yet distinct ways in his own life in this moment and makes application of God's word to his present circumstances. This recollection of Scripture, therefore, prompts another audible word from the lips of the poet. Right, he's, he's musing in verses 1-17, through 17, and then verse 18, he speaks a hope of despair. But then, consciously calling God's word to mind, he speaks another word out loud. What does he say? Previously concluding that his hope had perished from the Lord, in the echo of God's name, he now recalls God's steadfast love, mercy, and faithfulness, and is prompted to reclaim his hope in the Old Testament promises that God would be his God and that he would be and belong to his people. So he says, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will hope in him. He thought his hope had perished, that it was gone. But at the very sound of God's name and all that it implies about his character, the poet remembers, I do have hope. This is what the mention of God's name ought to produce in those who fear him. Previously, as we said in Lamentations 2, perhaps it was the woman city's failure to mention God's name that she fell into hopeless, despairing silence at the very end of Lamentations 2. She contents herself throughout with, He, He has become my enemy. But the poet here, Lamentations 3, demonstrating a deep, robust, and full faith in God, looks squarely at his agony. 
He looks directly at his suffering, almost to the point of madness, but he refuses to be dragged over the ledge. And he utters and he hears God's name, and it brings him back to balance. Yes, his suffering is agonizing, but God never fails to be faithful, to be merciful, to be gracious. God himself is his portion. Everything else in the world might be taken away from him. But he has the Lord. And therefore, the man of affliction can hope. So that's the poet's use of Scripture to find hope once again. Look with me in the second place is verses 25 through 30 where the poet commits to wait patiently on the Lord in light of his sufferings, in light of his reflection of God's never-failing mercy, and he encourages others to do the same. It's worth noting here that there is a slight but sure communal aspect to these verses. He's no longer talking in the, the first person. But he doesn't really move into the second person either. He's not talking about himself. He's not talking directly to someone. He's not quite ready to address his suffering companions. But he's not able to sustain a merely personalized vantage point on his situation either. He builds on the majestic truth that he's just discovered in his suffering. And he says, God is good. But he doesn't say, God is good to me, but to the one who waits for him. To all who wait for him, in other words. So he says, God is good. He's good to those who wait. He's good to those who seek him. And it's good to wait for the salvation of God, even when it seems long delayed. It's good that a man bear the yoke in his youth. Since that's true, that it's good to wait, how do we respond? Well, he says the sufferer should not resent the silence. He should embrace it. He shouldn't merely heap up accusations and bitter complaints. For, given the long-suffering nature of God, he says there may yet be hope. The sufferer can endure beatings and insults, verse 30, because of the prospect of hope that comes from the God of all hope. Admittedly, uh, these verses here in 25 through 30 uh, can be a bit difficult to hash out the precise meaning of all the specific details, but the point of these verses is simple enough. Since God is good to those who wait for Him, we can wait for Him. In our suffering, we can endure punishments, we can endure isolation, even beatings and mockery of all sorts. One detail especially worth noting here uh, is found in verses 28 and 29. The poet, he says, let him sit alone in silence. So is he saying, don't talk about your suffering? Is he saying that we're not allowed to speak about our pain? Is he telling us to sit down and shut up and to just suffer in silence? Well, Clearly, no, because this would contradict 
the book's very existence. It would contradict everything that has occurred thus far in the book and everything he's going to say after this. The point that he makes is that when we recall God's goodness, we can resist the urge to fill our mouths with complaints, accusations, and cursings. He says we can lay our complaints in the dust, holding out for the hope that is offered to those who love and fear God. And even when it seems like God is silent, which he has been up to this point in the book, we can still wait. We don't have to charge God with wrong like we're so prone to do. So it's 25 through 30, a brief point there. We'll move on now to our third and final point here in verses 31 through 39 where he states in, in, a, in a summary, grounding fashion, everything I've just said, the poet says, because of what I'm about to say next, these things can be held with a firm grasp. Right? You see where he begins verse 31 with the word for. For the Lord will not cast off forever. Because of this, and what I'm about to say, he says, you can know that what I've said previously is true. And so he states three truths about God here in verses 31 through 39. First, in verses 31 through 33, he highlights what? The compassion of the Lord. He says, yes, the Lord has cast off, but not forever. Yes, he has caused grief, but his steadfast love shall again be demonstrated for us to see. Yes, he has afflicted, but this is not what he most longed to do. Here the poet builds upon the character discoveries of verses 21 through 24. Why can the sufferer patiently endure in his agony? Is because the Lord's anger won't last forever. He will again pour out His compassion and steadfast love. It's not the deepest longing of His heart to inflict pain upon His people. Let me ask you something. What, what is your perception of God? What attribute or attributes of God come to mind when you think about Him? What are the things that rush to your, your intellect, to your um, imagination? When you think about God, what is it that you think about Him? Do you tend to view God as an austere, cruel, and calculating master who is looking for every opportunity to smite those who step the smallest toe out of line? As we've worked our way through Lamentations... And we've heard the dreadful depictions of God's judgment against sin. Have you just been thinking the whole time? Yeah, that sounds about right. Of course God came down like a ton of bricks on those sinners. That's just what He does. He prowls about like a roaring lion looking for those whom He may devour. My friends, if that's your view of God, I'd like to suggest you may have inadvertently mistaken the devil for God. The devil grieves the children of man directly from his heart. Not the Lord. 
Yes, God judges sin. His, his holiness necessitates it. But it's not because he just loves wreaking havoc on sinners. He does, however, according to this passage, love lavishing abundant mercy on sinners. So if you find yourself a bit surprised by the language of verse 31, verse 32, verse 33, or maybe not consciously surprised, but sort of uncomfortable with it in some way, might might I encourage you to take a deeper look at your concept of God? Who is God? Could it be that you have a warped and misguided view of God, thinking Him a cruel and heartless deity that simply wants, He just wants conformity to His will and His ways and nothing else. He's always just looking for a reason to squish and to squash the disgusting worms, otherwise known as humans, that He has begrudgingly and regretfully decided to save. Is that God? God is fundamentally, essentially compassionate. But, as we see in verses 34 through 36, he, that doesn't mean that he is unjust. Consider what the poet says about God. And in these verses here, he highlights God's justice. He says, the Lord disproves of those who crush underfoot, those who pervert and deny justice to the needy. These three verses here are a subtle nod and foreshadowing to what is coming, in, particularly in verses 55 through 56, which, Lord willing, we'll consider next week together. But for now, we'll just say this. What is it that God thinks of the cruel acts of barbarity conducted by the Babylonians? Remember, it was the Babylonians who came and sieged Jerusalem and destroyed the city in 586 B.C. What does God think of that? Well, we saw back in Lamentations 1 where Lady Zion was able there to call to mind God's promise of retribution against Babylon. And it led her to plead with God to deal with them as He had dealt with her because of all her transgressions. She says, yeah, Lord, I'm wrong, but so are they. But it brings up an interesting point here as the man identifying the, with his people calling upon God, remembering God's justice, it's a bit ironic. It's ironic that he might hope in the fact that God does not approve of injustice. What's ironic about it? Well, Israel had been a place steeped in injustice for centuries. But he hasn't forgotten that. The poet hasn't forgotten that. He's not ignoring that fact. He's simply confessing the reality that God is a God of justice. And because of that, His judgments are never cruel. They are never more than they should be. They are more than we can bear, but they are not more than we deserve. Right? You, you have never, I have never, we have never received, we have never suffered an ounce from God's hand more than you deserve. And yet, at the same time, you may have suffered, living in this world, you probably have suffered more than you deserved at the hands of another person. 
And that is something that God hates. And so even in the darkness of your agony, your suffering, you can hope in God who is full of compassion and tender love. You can hope in God who more than you could ever imagine loves justice. Perfect justice. We may not get perfect justice in this life, but as we'll see, eventually, perfect justice will be met out in all accounts. We see in verses 37 through 39 then, the poet, he asks three questions, highlighting God's sovereignty and, and that brings this section to a close. The questions in essence are this, can anyone contravene God's will? Do not all things, both goodness itself and the evils we face, come to us from the Sovereign Lord? And finally, therefore, when we sin, do we, don't, do we, not, we don't have any room, right, to complain when there are consequences for our sin. You know, oftentimes, well-meaning people, I assume they're well-meaning, well-meaning people will attempt to get God off the hook in their suffering and in the suffering of the world by claiming that God has nothing to do with it. Nothing to do with your hardships. Well, we must affirm, verses 31 through 33, that God, He doesn't grieve from His heart. The reality is that God is totally and completely sovereign over everything that comes to pass in the universe. He can't be thwarted, verse 37, He's sovereign over the good and the evils that we experience. It's 38. And we ought not to complain when he visits us with consequences for our sins. Verse 39. These three truths in verses 31 through 39, the compassion of the Lord, the justice of the Lord, and the sovereignty of the Lord are vital for us to remember in order to suffer well. They're not all we need to remember, but... If we forget these three things, we're in trouble. God is compassionate, just, and sovereign. And so your suffering will be utterly unbearable and, from your perspective at least, completely meaningless if you forget these truths. Right? Think about it. If God isn't compassionate, then that means your suffering may very well have no end. If God is not just, then that means your suffering may very well be far more and far worse than you could ever deserve. And it might mean that those who afflict you might not be punished at all. And if God is not sovereign, then that means He can't do anything about your suffering. You're left at the mercy of enemy assailants. You're left at the mercy of the devil, the forces of nature, or whatever else might be against you. If God isn't sovereign, He simply watches from the sidelines, impotent and helpless. But because he is compassionate, because he is just, because he is sovereign, you can rest assured, provided that you have taken refuge in him by faith, as the poet has done, you can rest assured that your suffering will end, that it will be measured, and that no one can thwart God's plans for you. And your suffering has a purpose. So, 
Friends, if you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord Jesus, perhaps you've labored under a heavy delusion about Him, mistaking Him for a cruel, tyrannical despot, would you, in light of these truths presented to you today, would you look with faith to the Lord Jesus Christ? To Jesus who graciously and mercifully and uh, in, in a manner abounding in steadfast love, this Jesus whose mercies never cease, would you look to Him who died for sinners like us so that we might come to know the full abundance of God's grace and His never-ending mercy? Don't look to yourself any longer, but look to the Lord, I pray. And if you do know Him, and I trust that most of us here certainly do, if we know Jesus, but if you find yourself today or next week or next year on the brink of despair like the poet did in verse 18, would you set your heart on the name of God? And let it, in the beautiful character of God that it proclaims and represents, would you let His name echo out in your soul to console and to comfort you? Friends, we have two paths before us. You have the one of misery, sorrow, and bitterness. On the one hand, that will lead only to more sorrow, misery, and bitterness. And on the other, you have comfort, joy and peace not not a trite comfort and joy and peace not an easy comfort joy and peace as shortly we see the poet when we get to lamentations 4 descends back into sadness but it is real comfort joy and peace so i want to invite us now to take our first step or the next step on the right path as we come to the lord's table